Today's conversation is with Mike Cahill, longtime friend and investor who's been so kind to walk through his thinking on the market, especially as it relates to the very important topic of inflation. And yes, that's not a sentence I've often uttered as a growthy, techy investor. But the debate about whether inflation will be transitory or structural has been ongoing, but not always helpful. Pundits are ping-ponging around with recent data rather than getting underneath the surface to examine the longer-term forces at play. And this is where Mike comes in. His framing is clear, succinct, understandable, and will help all of us have much more nuanced and helpful conversations on the topic. We will cover so much, ranging from CPI to ESG. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, today we're doing something that might be a little bit orthogonal, but I don't think it is at all, because everyone is wondering about you know, about equity prices and interest rates, which are critical, as Scott points out, in, in all the DCFs are really critical if they move a lot, and a lot of that gets connected back to inflation. So as a, a pathway, we're, Mike is here to help us even begin to structure something that particularly equity investors and our community of friends in the business world really doesn't generally have a method of structuring their thinking about this topic the way, let's say, a fixed income investor would. So Mike's going to go through effectively four slides. You don't have them, but we have them mentally, and we'll kind of go through four elements of his uh, uh, framing of this topic and some of his critical, critical arguments, and then we'll expand beyond that. Um, Mike, take it away and help us. Sure. Thank you, Pip, uh, and, and thank you, Brent, as well. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about why I believe the recent rise in inflation is more structural and, be, and will be more persistent than I think the consensus um, forecasts. And it's because in my mind, um, capital starvation is really driving this, some of these inflationary pressures. Yes, we have had a lot of supply chain issues. We've had used car prices go through the roof, but three significant industries have faced multiple years, almost you know, in some situations, a decade of capital starvation, which is making the supply response very challenged to the increased demand. And I'm gonna, unfortunately, you don't have the slides, but I'll, I'll step through the numbers uh, for you. But we, we have first... tremendous vision as a group. So you're pretend you're looking at slide number one. Mike is gonna detail it for you. Exactly. Picture a, a graph or a chart that peaks in 2014 and goes straight down to 2020. 2021. And that is the global capital expenditures of the oil industry. So those CapEx numbers peaked at 600 billion in 2014, and then declined pretty much in a straight line uh, until 2020, when the number uh, of global CapEx in the oil industry hit 291 billion. So a 50% decline uh, over eight years. And that is why it's not a surprise that OPEC and um, the other oil producers are having a very challenging time increasing production uh, rapidly because they have underspent on their CapEx over the last <coughs> eight years. Um, another factor <coughs> getting into um, the, the spending on oil 
is that 50% of the oil is produced by public companies that now face tremendous ESG pressures. And those ESG pressures are to divest uh, certain fields, uh, to reduce their capital expenditure, um, and, and that's making it, you know, increasing the challenge to uh, spend more money on CapEx to, to drive oil production. Now, 50%, the other 50% is basically spent by the sovereign nations like Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait, uh, and, you know, the UAE and Oman and places like that. They don't face the same ESG pressures, so they will, uh, they will be able to spend, but uh, the world is becoming increasingly dependent on them. And Mike, I was thinking that uh, it's the food chain of financing, not just those companies. So banks don't want to be associated with certain extremely positive NPV projects because now all of a sudden they're in the food chain they don't want to be involved in. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not your good point, Pip. It's not just capital starvation from the companies, you know, spending, you know, spending less capex and maybe doing more dividends. It's actually capital constraint that they're facing also on the public side in particular, because as you said, there are now you know, large pools of capital that will, will not invest in these companies at all. So they, they have restricted the access to capital in addition to the companies you know, kind of starving their own capital expenditures. Do you want us to flip to slide number two that doesn't exist other than in our mind? Yes, this is a similar chart. Um, this one peaked in 2012 and declined until um, basically 2017 and 18, but has been bouncing along the bottom since then. The third industry that's faced significant capital starvation is the commodity space. So this is like copper mines and nickel mines, um, lithium, even though you know some of these, those, all of those metals go into electric vehicles, they actually have faced uh, significant capital starvation as well. I went through the annual reports of the 10 larger um, mining companies that focused on more of the, the metals that go into batteries than, than coal. But um, that CapEx figure peaked at 71 billion in 2012 and declined to 29.7 billion in 2020, a 58% decline. Um, and mines, unlike an oil field um, that can come up a little faster, but uh, to bring up a new mine because of permitting and environmental and, and capital raising issues, because these are very long lead time items, uh, is at least five years, more likely 10 to 15 years to bring up new mines. And, and that's uh, a real challenge and, and why it's not a surprise that copper is you know, near an all time high, nickel's at an all time high, lithium, um, cobalt prices have, have accelerated dramatically. Um, actually, the London Metals Exchange uh, hit a 47-year low on copper inventories in 2021. So copper, uh, the commodities are another industry uh, pushing inflation through capital starvation. The last one I will chart, uh, you know, in terms of industry I wanted to go through was, and, and this is the biggest of them all in terms of the CPI calculation, is the housing industry. So Freddie Mac estimates that the U.S. has a cumulative deficit of 3.8 million homes and multifamily units as a result of the chronic underbuilding since the great financial crisis, really since 2009. 
Um, now, shelter, which is, is what uh, is the term that they use in the CPI calculation, shelter comprises one third of the CPI basket. And shelter is um, it's a, basically a formula that's driven by owner's equivalent rent. And that is largely driven by housing prices because they impute a rent to, if you own a home, they kind of impute what the rent would be for that home. So as housing prices go up, they filter into the CPI calculation for shelter with a lag because you theoretically have to have your lease expire and then renew and then, and then your rent would go up. So housing prices have really started to inflect um, in 2021, they had been relative. If you look at like, I went to the Federal Reserve's um, database and, and went through their housing prices. And you can see that housing prices were relatively, you know, flat in terms of the, the annual increase, um, clipping along at like, you know, low to mid single digits for the last several years. But then in 2021, they inflected significantly. And in the third quarter, they inflected even more up to 16.4%. Uh, the, the fourth quarter of 2021, I think is gonna be even higher than that. And that th those numbers are gonna filter into CPI with a 12 to 14 month lag. So I think we baked in significant CPI upward bias with a third of the calculation going higher. Now, part of the reason why I think housing prices will remain high is because home sales in 2021 hit a 15 year high. So, you know, lots of homes are selling rapidly. There's huge demand. Yet home inventory for sales hit a, um, a, a 22 year low. It's the lowest level since the NAR, National Association of Realtors has began tracking home inventory for sale. And they started tracking in 1999. I want to say something about this pie chart because there's a, a, a big yellow piece of pie that is that shelter component at one third. The next largest is uh, commodities, non-food and energy commodities at 13%. Everything else in that CPI basket is at a much lower weight. So I just didn't want to understate how much of an impact that shelter is at around 30%. Yeah, so I'll I'll speak to the wheel right now, as as I call it. So this and is the, and the wheel is is the imaginary chart number four, probably the easiest one for us humans to envision. But yeah. got a wheel, a wheel, not a pie chart. It's a wheel. Go for it, Mike. So this <laughs> is the, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and this is the CPI basket weightings. So if you um, you know you start at the top, energy commodities and energy services. If you add those together, that's seven and a half percent. And then transportation is another 5%. So um, those are all impacted dramatically by higher you know, oil prices. As Bryn said, the largest portion of the, of the, the wheel is, is shelter. And that's 32.4%. Um, out, outstrips everything else by, by a mile. Um, another big component is medical services and it, at 7% and educational services at 6 So those categories that I just outlined um, add up to 58% of the CPI basket. 
And I think that all of those, I mean, if we, anyone who has a kid knows that, you know, their education costs has never gone down. Uh, or, you know, if, if you have to buy insurance, uh, health insurance, medical services never goes down either. So 58% of, of, the, of the pie is, is, in my mind, accelerating. Now, Bryn talked about, you know, food away from home and food at home is, is you know, roughly 14, 15%. So that's a big category. I'm not even fact, I'm not even talking about that. Although if you have increasing commodity prices um, and particularly natural gas prices, which feed into fertilizer prices, you're gonna have higher food inflation too. But that's, that's, that's a separate topic and easy to talk about. Um, the used car prices, so that got a lot of press. And I view this one as transitory, not structural like the other ones I brought up. But used car prices were blamed for spiking in inflation towards the end of the year. Uh, used car prices represent 3.4% of the CPI basket. So a tiny little sliver had a big impact uh, on inflation. What I'm worried about is the big pie, the big slices of pie are just about to start to have their impact in 2022. So I view uh, inflationary pressures as, as quite um, challenging. And so when you have inflation running hot, which it did 7% in December of last year, an economy that just printed 6.9% GDP growth in the fourth quarter, unemployment at 3.9%, and household net worth at an all-time high. And prior to the last couple of weeks, the equity markets were also at an all-time high. The Fed is way behind the curve. And um, no Fed chairman wants to go down as being the Arthur Burns of Fed chairs. And Arthur Burns was the Fed chairman in the 1970s when inflation was rampant. They all wanna be the modern day Paul Volcker. Well, right now, Powell is looking a lot like Arthur Burns and not like Paul Volcker. So I think the you know, equity investors have become very accustomed to the, the Fed put or the Fed bailout. I think the Fed put strike price is a lot lower in 2022 than it's ever been. Unlike in 2018, when the Fed pivoted after a 20% drawdown, uh, in, in January of 2019. This time, inflation is running at 7%. The last time inflation ran at 7% was 1981, when Paul Volcker was fighting it. So I think, you know, the Fed's not going to act until we, until the equity markets, you know, get, get down to like 25% before they pivot, because they have factors that they're facing that they haven't faced in, in decades. There's so many different directions that we can go with. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in. Let's see. First off, yesterday, Mike, in in our group, you ran a, a little survey. And I think you gave everyone four choices. And the by far the most popular choice was that I think like 71% uh, of the, of our small group of equity investors, almost all equity investors, said. Uh, inflation would go up to 4% and then 2023, it would settle down to 2%. And A, I want to know, are you surprised by that? 
be what you went through by the end. We took that poll at the beginning. What you went through was just the math and the math of the situation as like Mo Pickens might say, this is just a math problem. Ultimately, what real inflation is, is different than the stated math problem inflation, including all sorts of adjustments that humans make, and we can get at that too. But I have this thought that as equity investors, we're sort of anchored that 2% is normal because we've had it so long that we almost can't envision a world that doesn't go back to two. Were you at all surprised by that number, and admittedly, most of us didn't think we had a very strong conviction in our answer, but that was our, our answer. How do you think about that? Well, one thing, I think the Fed has anchored us on 2% because the Fed has been talking about 2% for a very long time. And they, you know, that was part of the reason that they wanted to get inflation up to 2% when it was basically below 2%. Um, and Japan has really struggled to get any inflation at all. So, so it's funny just to jump in that the anchor sometimes anchor even. Exactly. But, <laughs> um, but you know, Pip, you have a very sophisticated group. So they had, uh, you know, I, it, it didn't necessarily surprise me that they thought inflation would run a little hotter, a little longer than I think consensus. I think the consensus is that it's going to peak in the first half and then fade by the end of the year. Um, but, you know, you, you have a lot of really great investors, uh, you know, in well, your- I don't know if we have many great interest rate people <laughs> or inflation people. I mean, a lot of smart people, I don't think many of them would raise their hand and go, yeah, I'll go to the wall for interest rates or inflation. What you presented was just, this is just how the mask going to spill out, sort of. It wasn't yeah. down into innovation and all those things. And even Glenn, and we might want to talk about you know, how people adjust to higher rents or how people change their lives and their spending in face of high blah, 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 or you know, fewer people going to college because you know, now that's a super, all that type of stuff. You were just saying, this is a mathematical, not certainty, but leaning towards certainty. And then the question is, how will the Fed respond? And they're not just going to sit there like a pudding and get pummeled. I thought that was right. a really interesting point. There's something about the headline risk of the CPI, which is not the most perfect measure, but it is the thing that most people will look at and say, ah, <laughs> look at that, look at, and we must base our decisions off of that. What happens when the CPI goes higher uh, is people, you know, two things. One, if their wages go up more than CPI, they feel okay. If their wages go up less than CPI, they feel like they're falling behind and losing. And that's where the political pressure comes from. So right now, the wages, you know, pre-pandemic, the wages used to grow, you know, at like two to three percent for a very long time. Now, recently, the wages as in December they inflected to be up four point seven percent. So they're starting to inflect upwards, incorporating in some of this CPI pressure as well. We all hear all the anecdotal stories about how so many companies can't hire enough people, they can't retain the people. So I think wages are gonna go higher and continue to trend higher as well. Um, and so I, I, I do think there's, there's you know, a fair amount of, of uh, pressure building in the system from the CPI and wages uh, you know, on inflationary pressures. And what you don't wanna have happen is the wage price you know, spiral, you know, 
prices go up, so they have to pay more wages, and then, then that drives prices up more, and then wages go up. That was what happened in the 70s when things got really out of control. Um, that's what politicians want to avoid. That's why you're going to hear much more hawkish um, tones out of the you know, Fed. And, and even Biden is, is trying to you know, tamp down inflation. So I, I, I think that's going to continue. It's, it's ironic in, in a couple of ways. One thing is we're saying just, is this math problem going to be an issue that the Fed responds? And does that, that kick up? Does the short term of the yield curve then affect the longer term, which then affects equity prices in theory in our DCFs and all? And even that tie isn't, isn't completely clear, but that's in there. And then the second question is, does it escape just the math problem and actually become a longer term in quotes problem? Does it become something that's endemic over the next four or five years? Mike, do you have a as strong a thought about that? That's that's the danger scenario. And that's what Powell, that's why Powell has to, you know, really hit it pretty hard. Because if if he doesn't, and then we, we get into that spiral where you know inflation's going up and wages are going up and they're behind the curve, that's that's when things get out of control. And, and part of the reason why, you know, that, that's when interest rates really go up a lot. And, you know, we can talk about this later, but the, the government has benefited tremendously from the decline in interest rates. Interest rates have fallen for basically 40 straight years. And the, that's enabled the government to borrow a tremendous amount of debt at lower and lower interest rates. So just to put it in context, in 2007, the government had $9 trillion in debt. And the interest expense on the $9 trillion was $430 billion. 2021, the government debt was $28.5 trillion. So up 3.1 times the 2007 amount. Yet interest expense went up only by 33%. So it went from 430 billion of interest expense to 575 billion of interest expense, up 33%. So free money. There is, you know, politicians, whether they acknowledge it or not, have benefited unbelievably from, from a declining interest rate environment, which has enabled them to borrow more and more money at a cheaper and cheaper cost. I think in 2022 that trend changes. And right now, you know, the debt is, it hit 30 trillion uh, this week. Uh, so every 100 basis point increase in interest rates is $300 billion of debt service cost or to the deficit. Uh, that's a big deal. And I think that um, that's, that's the risk. If interest rates went crazy, our deficit is gonna explode. So they, they can't, Powell can't let it go, you know, go crazy. And, and at the same time, one of our friends in fixed income says all around the world, um, governments have been anti-austerity. That one thing that governments can control in theory is their spending. But right now there's very, at the same time, President Biden might be looking to fight inflation. He also has a growing 
list of social ideas that he has, probably the largest since Lyndon Johnson, whether those get through or not, but the idea of new infrastructure for childcare, things like that, which may be awesome ideas or bad ideas, whatever that might be, but there's very little thought of austerity. Is that resonate with you, Mike, when you look around the globe? Oh, totally, Pip. I mean, you know, I, I don't think you can find a, a program or, you know, that has been implemented by the government that ultimately gets cut. I mean, if you think about any sort of social program, once implemented, you know, even though they might say it's temporary, often becomes permanent. So we have a very hard time walking back any of the uh, expenditures at I mean, all. One of David Kim's points last March, <clears throat> two Marches ago, I'm sorry, right out of the gate, he said, it'll be really interesting. A government is injecting itself in a level that maybe has never been seen before, telling people they can't go out of their homes all around the globe. Um, and he wasn't saying that was a bad or a good thing. What he did say is it's going to be really interesting to see how and the degree to which government removes itself. So if for the last 10 years, we were already moving towards anti-austerity spending, we're gonna get into more things. At this point, the government's like doubled up, the pandemic has doubled up the intrusive, let's call it intrusiveness or involvement or whatever. I doubt they're gonna be quick to pull back from that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Let's talk a bit about ESG. That's another element that you've said is you know very inflationary. Sure, so I, I mean, I think, one of the things with um, um, ESG is it basically introduces uh, a new stakeholder into the equation, and it's hard to quantify the benefits uh, that that stakeholder gets because it's super long term. I mean, the climate is really hard to to you know quantify the benefit you know many years down the road, but it does have a real cost. Um, you know, to companies right now. So it's a cost with, with, a, with a, you know, a benefit that's less, less quantifiable to, to say that. But one of the things um, on the ESG side that I, I've been seeing that I don't think is, is really accomplishing what the people that want to, you know, they're pushing for ESG want to accomplish is um, they're forcing Companies are, are taking the easy way out, basically. So I'll use a concrete example. Exxon has an oil field in Iraq. And Iraq is one of the most heavily polluting uh, oil you know, industries. They have one of the most heavily polluted oil industry in the world um, because they have excessive flaring. I don't think they have an environmental protection agency. And, and they just, they're, they're not good for the environment at all. That field um, has 10 times the carbon footprint of any of Exxon's other fields. So it's a huge problem for them. But rather than fix it, and, and you know, a company like Exxon actually has the resources and the capabilities to mm -hmm. fix that. Mm -hmm. But rather and than an activist board members now. It, it, yes. But rather than fix it, they're just trying to get rid of it. And so they're, they're selling this asset at pennies on the dollar just to improve their carbon footprint uh, immediately. But the world is much worse off because that asset is being sold to one of the biggest polluters in the world that has no intention of, of fixing it. They're just getting a, 
what now is a, a super cheap asset uh, at a very low basis. And they're just going to run it as they've been running their other oil fields, uh, heavy, heavily polluting. So I, I almost think the ESG people, for as opposed to the expediency of, of you know, just dumping these assets to get it off the balance sheet so that their footprint looks better. I, I wish that they were pushing the, the companies that have the ability to fix that problem, force them to fix it versus selling it to somebody who's not going to fix it at all. It's like what Jags Walia would say, you can move the assets that are causing the problems for you off the books, but the planet cannot. So exactly. the, the overarching yeah. goal of ESG is not met. Yeah, it actually, so what you have is in, in this example for Exxon, the ESG pressures have actually failed the planet yeah. because they've pushed the asset to somebody who will never fix the problem because they're not, they're the worst polluter to begin with. And that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, I do think there's you know, like, there's, there's some good things that have happened with ESG uh, and JAGS in particular has done some unbelievable, super admirable work. Um, but I, I wish that some of these companies were forced to fix the problem versus, you know, just try to clear the books of it. And then, I mean, this is a total aside. We were talking about this earlier, but I really do struggle with how um, people are been very focused on the environmental element of ESG and let the you know S and G, the social and governance, slide. I view what Facebook has done uh, to our youth and with their own governance, which has been uh, you know basically exposed in the Wall Street Journal in a multi-part series uh, as as un, you know incredibly bad. Uh, yet. A lot of ESG funds own Facebook. Uh, BlackRock is the second largest shareholder, owns over 6% of Facebook. Um, and they're, you know, theoretically a leader in, in ESG. How an ESG fund can have any exposure to, to Facebook is beyond me. Yeah. When we started this podcast, I did not envision an episode with inflation in the title. But I think it's prescient, this idea that tech investors or growth investors, who could just be growth investors over the last 20 or 30 years, we may find ourselves in a cycle or phase in which any outperformance will have a macro thesis attached or at least some deep understanding of how we're positioned in relation to the macro in a way that we didn't have to explain or think about before. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.